You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. So today I get to talk with David Hayward. I'm really excited about that. I've been reading David's cartoons, it feels like, for quite a long time. And in the succession of my belief system, of course, some of them were quite shocking to me in the beginning, and now I find myself fully on board with them. <laughs> and and so that's uh, that's been a happy little evolution for me. Um, David, I'm so happy that you could sit down today to, and discuss a book with me. That's one of my favorite things. Um, so if you would, and I sure most people that are listening probably know who you are, but just in case, how uh-huh. about we do a quick back of the book bio uh, of who you are and what you're about? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation too. Um, it's funny. Some people would say that you've uh, your heart's gradually hardened over time. That's why you're <laughs> more used to my cartoons. <laughs> well, I'm sure they could have an argument there, but <laughs> yeah, but but uh, you know, some people say they they evolve and to come to a place where they understand what they mean and, and get what they're mm-hmm. saying, and others, um, well, you know, just even today, I've been trolled pretty seriously <laughs> by some people, uh, and yeah, you know, because of my cartoons. But I haven't always been a cartoonist. I've always mm-hmm. I've I. For my entire life, my dad was an artist, and I remember very early drawing and painting and things like that. Mm. And um, I, long story short, I went to Bible college. I uh, went to seminary. I ended up getting ordained. Mm. I was in the ministry for approximately, I say, I rounded off to 30 years where I served the church as some sort of leadership role, either pastor or assistant pastor. And I was in different denominations, Pentecostal, Baptist, Presbyterian, um, independent, vineyard. Uh, so I served the church for many years. I started my blog in 2005, I believe. I started cartooning in 2006. Hmm. And um, I challenged myself to draw a cartoon every day until wow. I ran out of ideas. I thought I'd <laughs> last a month. Here I am going, you know, 13 years later, still doing cartoons oh pretty goodness. nearly every day. Wow. And uh, I left the ministry in 2010, taught at a university for a couple of years, and then I decided to make the leap into, um, you know, depending on my own art and writing and and so on for my income. And so far, it's worked. Mm. So that's that's the short version <laughs> of a very complicated and interesting life. So oh, That's awesome, though. But where did you go to seminary? I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary outside of oh, Boston. Okay. And then mm-hmm. I also went to McGill University uh, Presbyterian College there for another year um, to get my um, diploma of religion and ministry hmm. so I could well, get ordained. You know, a lot of, uh, a, a big word that we hear, of course, right now is is the word deconstruction. Uh-huh. And, and so it sounds as though there was possibly a shift for you somewhere in there in leaving the ministry. Is that true? Or was it just time to be done with ministry? No, no, definitely. Uh, it was linked to my deconstruction. Um, okay. I always found myself gravitating towards churches that I felt gave, were going to provide me room to grow. Um, because mm. one of the most important things in my own personal life is feeling free to explore and travel uh, my own spiritual path mm. uh, without constriction or um, you know, um, you know, blockage. To, to my right. own personal development. 
And it just came to the point in 2010 when um, I realized I wouldn't be able to continue on the path I was on without causing a great deal of conflict in the congregation. So mm. I decided it was best for me and for the church that we have an amicable divorce and uh, <laughs> we went our separate ways. And um, I'm glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome because usually, you know, when we hear about deconstruction, it's usually from the other perspective of people leaving churches, you know, and mm-hmm. and pastors holding on very tightly, and and mm-hmm. so um, and and of course that was my experience, and so it, it's interesting to hear it from the other side as well. I know a few other pastors as well that have gone through the same thing. Um, yeah, and and I think of course that's a very difficult process in and of itself, but then coming from a position of that being your livelihood, so to speak, and then having this big shift is is kind of daunting, you know, as, as, you, mm-hmm. as you're considering it and thinking about it, I'm sure it has to be very difficult. So, well, my people ask when I deconstructed, but I, I, it began in seminary, but mm-hmm. the real serious, uh, eventual, it's kind of like a, the melting of a huge glacier and, and mm-hmm. it finally, and it finally crumbled for me in 2009 which led to my departure from the ministry in 2010. So my 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 deconstruction was very very kind of a glacial melt over many <laughs> years, and uh, to the point where um, you know I, I I was enjoying the ride pretty much. But I mean, by the time uh, 2009 came around, it I knew I knew my time was up because it was causing the the way I was going, the direction I was going in was causing conflict and. Right. Um, and it was just best for if I wanted to to be out with my um, with my spirituality and not conceal it or hide it from my church. Then I knew it was going to cost me my job essentially. Right. So yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I you know I I, w- I wish that there was a better way of doing it, but I have found for <laughs> myself and for many, of course, that that the whole process itself is very psychological. Um, and, and, and I'm actually working on my doctorate in psychology and that was actually an original thesis idea for me, the, that the whole psychology of, of that deconstructing a belief system and kind of its application to a grief cycle almost. Um, Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. We go through so many emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very traumatic. It is. And, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, you know, a a lot of people want to argue terminology. Well, what deconstruction originally is and, and, and I get all of that, but eventually we're all kind of talking about the same thing. And, um, and the, and the part that I struggle with that is the idea that we, we have a tendency to judge one another's process instead of allowing that just like grief, it's very subjective and that each of us is going to handle it differently Mm -hmm. based on how we actually got there. Um, right. or, you know, our experiences therein, um, you know, there's a lot that goes into that process. And so I, I applaud people that are able to now speak about it. I I'm almost at that point. I feel like I've, right. <laughs> I've kind of, I, I had a very, um, abrupt departure from the church, not of my choice. And so that led to a lot of anger. And of course, so I've had to work through deconstruction from a, from a lens of anger, which has been more difficult, at least for me. Oh. Yeah. So, well, that's not not an unusual occurrence. I mean, yeah, I know. Unfortunately, most of the people I know, uh, most of the people I know who deconstructed and have left the church, uh, it wasn't pretty. No, it, and it usually isn't. Yeah, like you're saying, right. and, and that's very unfortunate. But so, and you know, people, why why are you using the word deconstruction? And you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. argue that's a philosophical mm-hmm. term by Jacques yes. Derrida. And, yes, and so that's on. the argument. But, but um, 
Um, no, I, I, I love Derrida and, and yeah. what he wrote and everything. But I, I started using that term because that's really what it is. It's the, the deconstruction of our beliefs. It, it really is the crumbling yes. and the erosion of thoughts yeah. and ideas and beliefs that we had. Our theology really does dissemble. And, 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 and if we are, if we want to participate in that, then we are actually deconstructing. Like, you know, if you take a house and it's old and run down and you want to build on the foundation, you got to really tear it down to the basic structure. So absolutely. And even Derrida himself uh, wrote that these are the words we use until we can find better words. And so, you know, to me, that's, I look at it and I I don't even entertain that argument anymore. For me, it's, it doesn't matter what we're calling it. We know what what process we're talking about. So exactly. And a lot of people would like to say, can you call it a crisis of faith or or thing? And (laughs) I'm like, yeah, but (laughs) that sort of gets the impression that it's like overnight. It it sounds like a a crisis rather than this long, arduous process of, (laughs) getting it back down to something simple. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we could talk about this for a long time, but absolutely, I want to talk about the book that you suggested. And, and just for those that are listening that may not know, um, and I'll explain it again, David, it, you know, the yeah. idea is, is the tagline of the podcast is bridging the sacred and secular divide, you know, a book by book. And, mm-hmm. and so the fact that we can find, you know, these great, uh, spiritual truths and something that would not be considered, you know, a spiritual book is, is very much a draw to me because I read so much. And so I would like for you to introduce the book that you suggested um, and tell me a little bit about it and, and tell me what about it inspired you or, and how do you make that connection to, to God, I guess, through the reading okay. of that book. All right. Well, when you guys ask me for a book, like I'm always reading and I have a bunch of books on the go and there are other books that I wanted to mention, but I'll be honest with you. Like uh, I wanted to mention the book, um, uh, seven lessons in physics. Hmm. Oh, wow. Seven, no, seven brief lessons in physics. But I was afraid to mention that book because mm-hmm. I feel like it's over my head and I'd sound like an idiot trying to no, explain. Probably me too. <laughs> That's all good. There, so, a lot of them are going to be over my head. So. <laughs> like, like it was just, uh, you know, uh, amazing. There's so much, there's so many good books out there. There um, are. I'm, I'm reading another one now called um, Search Inside Yourself by Tan. And it's just, just so many good books. But mm-hmm. I wanted to mention this book because um, it's just so timely. It's so relevant for right now um, for our, you know, for America, for um, Canada, where I am, mm-hmm. and uh, for the rest of the world. But it's Melinda Gates, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. And uh, I I got that book on the heels of Michelle Obama's book. Mm. Um, I, I read that, and I wanted to read Melinda Gates' book as well. And um, I just found it so, so powerful. Uh, she's a great storyteller she has some amazing stories uh she she goes around the world um empowering women and girls because her belief is that and she's it's a belief that she's seen work it actually works when you elevate uh or empower uh girls and women in a village um it elevates the health and the wealth of the entire village Right, and she's convinced, and I believe her, 
that when you empower women, it actually physically changes the world. It improves the conditions of, of the world. And so, um, you know, just reading through the book, it's really hard to put down because it's just story after story after story of, of, of examples where girls and women, uh, were empowered and actually elevated the, the health and wealth of the, I, I say, I hate saying health and wealth in the same sentence because <laughs> there's a whole theology called health, wealth, theology. Yes, but, there is. <laughs> but it really, the health and wealth of the, of the village um, right. was elevated uh, or their culture. It was, it was a, a, a book that was easier to read. Um, oh, yeah. Not not in its content, but in its flow. Like you said, she's a storyteller, right. and and so it 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 lended itself to um, being an enjoyable read. So that was that was the first and foremost. Because some of the stuff I read, like you said, can be over your head, and you spend a lot of time trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I found myself having to stop and go back and read a few of the things that she had described, um, because it's of course living in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada as well. We're kind of removed from a lot of the poverty that she discussed mm-hmm. and, and some of the outcome of that poverty. And uh, my poor husband, he is a victim of my read- um, reading. Um, <laughs> you know, anything I'm reading, I have to stop him and what he's doing. I'm like, listen to this. And I have to yeah. <laughs> read the whole thing. Yeah, my wife's I mean, the same. Yeah. Yeah. And then but, you can kind of see the look go over his face like, oh boy, this is going to be a discussion. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, but in reading, I went back through some of the some of the stuff I had highlighted last night. And, and honestly, some of it is so very disturbing. Some of the stuff that she has seen, um, Mm -hmm. conditions that women live in, in other countries in the world. And, and one of the things that struck me, of course, you know, she, as, as I'm sure you're aware, she talks about some of those, those bigger questions for women, like family planning and healthcare and, you know, uh, work disparity and things like right. this. And of course, as I had mentioned as a budding feminist, and, and of course that word in itself can be triggering for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. And we all seem to have a different definition for, I, I have a tendency to react strongly to some of this stuff. And, and so some of it was very upsetting. One of the things that really um, was upsetting to me, and of course, coming from a background that, that is heavily religiously, you know, influenced Right is often that idea of family planning and and how much yeah. we take that for granted. Yeah, you know, like oh well, I, if I choose not to have children, I'm I'm just going to use some form of birth control, and not really the log- not realizing the logistics of that for women in other countries is somewhat different. Um, right, and much more drastic. Um, yes, you know, and and so again, this was a moment last night. My my husband had to be had to be part of a conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. with regard to family planning. And he's like, Michelle, our kids are grown. I'm like, I understand that, but listen to this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, but she goes on in this book to talk about, you know, the miles that some women walk in other countries just for the hope that the, yeah. the, the birth control of their choice will be available to them. Right. And I take that for granted. I can just go to the drugstore. You know, I, I, that to me right there is, and, and her point in saying all that, as I understood it, when women are in charge of their own bodies, so to speak, as it pertains mm-hmm. to when and where they have children, right. there there is a sense of, of course, better health for them and for the children. And, and there's just so much that goes into that conversation, you know, all the way from whether they have birth control, uh, you know, accessible to them, all the way up to child brides. That was another thing that she discussed later in the book. 
And, and again, that's very disturbing to us here. We don't talk about things like that a lot, or we don't see that a lot in, you know, and, and the whole idea that children, if they're child brides and they have no control or autonomy over their own body as to when they have children are having children at these young ages, which is a very big detriment to their health. Um, mm-hmm. and to the health of the child that they have, quite honestly. So yes. she she really goes in depth. And I'm I was amazed at how many people she has actually spent time with in other countries, you know. Um right. I, I guess when I think of Bill and Melinda Gates, I don't think of, you know, them spending time in, you know, sitting in the dirt in some little country in the middle of nowhere. Right. And so right. I, I'm very impressed by that. Um yeah. I, I just again, overwhelmed emotionally with some of the stuff that she shared. Um, and, and quite honestly, humbled at my own, um, oh, what's a good word? The privilege that I enjoy, I guess, you know, again, another word that can be somewhat triggering for people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, um, several times in her book, she, she almost, um, it's like she has to give a disclaimer. It's almost Mm -hmm. like she's embarrassed with by her yes. well. Yeah. And and I know she get I've seen it myself online where people will say, the last thing we need is another billionaire telling right. us what the <laughs> world is like or what we need to do. Right. But <clears throat> she's constantly apologizing. Um, she spends quite a bit of time doing that. Not apologizing. Um I, I I'm not sure what it is, but uh, she she tries to explain but, but she's really doing the work. Like she actually right. is going into these villages and right. sitting with women and girls and delivering the medicine and whatever. Right. And, uh, you know, so she's, she really is doing the work and really is changing, um, not just, uh, the lives of girls or women, but entire villages and entire, even countries or agricultural systems and so on. Um, the, the, access to birth control and, mm-hmm. and all these kinds of things, which, uh, I was really, really impressed with. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, the, the thing I, I never realized how the, the, the whole birth control thing, I thought it was, I, I used to think it was just, you know, I don't want any more kids, but, right. um, it really is to space out mm-hmm. how many you know, how, how close your kids are together in age and also when to stop, you know, increasing the size of your family. I mean, because in some places, if you have one child, you know, and then you have another on the heels of that child, like there's going to be really dire consequences. I mean, it's life or death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she makes the point, uh, in one of the stories, even that one of the women that she had talked to, and I forget now, which country it was, but the woman I, I believe had six children at that point and had mm-hmm. said, well, I'm not going to have another one until my youngest one is four. And when asked, well, why four? She said, well, because at that point, that that youngest child will be at a point where they're able to help with the new baby, but they won't feel as though they've been cheated. And right. you know, I, I don't know, I guess, again, this is me being a product of where I live, but it didn't occur to me that that women thought about things like that in other countries, you know, it, it's just mm-hmm. more an idea of, Oh, they just have children indiscriminately. Um, right. which of course in some places is true, but of course with more education and more, uh, intervention, um, mm-hmm. you know, with birth control and family planning and stuff, you know, 
women are smart everywhere and, and they can certainly make those decisions when they're allowed to. Um, right. And of course, again, that becomes another big sticking point in this is, is the gender bias that's evident in, in much of the world. And even still in our own countries, um, you know, of course we, as a woman here, I'm much more able to be autonomous than I would be in some other country, you know, in Africa or South America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. But I, I found that that these women were actually very articulate and intelligent when presented right. with the opportunity and the option to be that. Right. And, and, and so access has become the biggest problem, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just she she explained really well how complicated it is. It's not it isn't just um, providing women with birth control. It's also overcoming the uh, patriarchal yes. uh, society they're they're in where the, the 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 man, the husband, the father, uh, it's a status symbol in some places mm-hmm. to have more and more children and and more boys and and right. uh you know to to use birth control is a a, a strike against the patriarchy kind of yeah. thing like it's just so complicated and and really a overwhelming um overwhelming issue that well, uh, she's trying to tackle yeah but even yeah. in in more developed countries i mean when you think about the religious True. overtones um of of family planning in itself um you know, it, it's, it's a well-known thing for years and years, of course, the, and I'm not Catholic, but the Catholic church of course was against any kind of contraception. Right. Um, and yet they're against abortion, you right. know, and, and, and then we have these overtones of the, of patriarchal thinking within the family, as far as the woman being subject to the man. And so it, it, the deck was really stacked, um, yeah. against women, even in more developed countries. And of course, Catholicism right. is worldwide. So even in some of the smaller yeah. countries and stuff, they're, they're dealing with that religious overtone as well. And that I have that actually in my notes quite a few times as I was going through the book, like this is another area in which religion has really played a very large part in, mm-hmm. uh, I don't like using that term, holding down women, but that that is essentially what has happened. Um, oh, yeah. Even in our own yeah. country, there, I mean, there's, you know, areas in our own country that, you know, still what I would consider very backward. Now, I live in California, so we tend to be the hippies out here, you know, the <laughs> progressive yeah, hippies yeah. that everybody makes fun of. So, um, but, you know, yeah. so it's it's weird to me to think that even in my own country, there are still places where this is very prevalent um, mm-hmm. in the mindset. And so that that is somewhat disrupting to my life when I, when I stop and start looking around. But she... Right. She actually, and this was a question that it was early in the book, but it, it kind of has had me thinking for quite a while. Um, the question was, what do you know now in a deeper way than you knew before? Mm-hmm. And, and to me that, you know, as I'm trying to make that connection to the, to the sacred side, that was a mm-hmm. question that seemed to, to kind of stand out because there's a lot of things that I know in a deeper way than I used to. Um, right as it pertains to almost any subject matter, hopefully, I mean, hopefully as you're getting older, you're learning and you're growing <laughs> and evolving right, in your exactly. thought processes. Um, but her answer was interesting to me. She said, wisdom isn't about accumulating more facts. It's about mm-hmm. understanding big truths in a deeper way. And right. I, I'm interested in your view on that. As far as it pertains to that question, what do you think, 
where do you find yourself in a deeper way now than, than where you were before after reading this book and, and, and saying, okay, here's things I hadn't considered. What do you think stands out for you is, is something that was uh, an aha moment, so to speak? Um, how me, me being a, a male, me being a, a male, a, a white male, a straight white male, um, in, you know, where I live, where I probably, I don't know, uh, you know, we both have g- decent jobs mm-hmm. and uh, my wife's a nurse. And so I, I was just became increasingly aware of, of our, of our privilege. And you can take that as positively sure, <laughs> or you can take it pejoratively because both are true. Um, that, and, and I, I became increasingly aware of how privileged I am in a good way, positive way. Yeah, you know, like Lisa and I could choose mm-hmm. when to have our kids mm-hmm. um, and space them out two years each, and you know, etc. And uh, that we make the money we need to feed them and clothe them, and you know, get them on their way to school or whatever. All these things are privileges. At the same time, I was becoming more and more aware of how maybe um, I have participated in a the patriarchy. <laughs> That's another triggering word for me. Oh, it is, yeah. But in a male-dominated uh, society, and uh, just to become increasingly aware of of uh, how I participated in that, even unconsciously, and I would like to, I, I sort of made a vow to myself that I wanted to learn more about this, overcome that, and do what I do what I can to um, empower girls and women mm-hmm. to, to rise up. It's like she, she says at one point, um, uh, when you lift up women, you lift up humanity. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that's true. So that, that's a deeper, that what I really learned from the book. Um, and I also appreciated her, um, like she's Roman Catholic as well, mm-hmm. devout, uh, a devout Roman Catholic. Uh, she even is a part of a small group, right. uh, prayer her study group and and so on so i was interested in her struggle uh with the church at one point she says because uh, you know being catholic and and um providing contraception uh those are kind of at odds with one another and right. so she asked this question uh can you take actions in conflict with a teaching of the church and still be a part of the church mm. that is a great question that is a great and question I'm always asking myself, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, people tell me the answer. They say, "No, you're you're not a part of the church." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, wait. Now I'm struggling with this. I'm 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 uh, I'm wrestling with the church right. for sure. Right. Uh, but can I still be a part of it and wrestle with it? Right. So I think that was a, a really deep, important question. Well, it is, and of course, as we've already discussed a little bit, that is a big question for a lot of people, certainly right now. Um, right. that, that is the, you know, the genesis of deconstruction basically is those questions that s- won't seem to stop and, right. and, you know, they bubble up and, and you're forced to confront them. And then of course, how do you balance that against what you believe? And so I appreciated her, her bringing that into the conversation as well, because I think it's very real. Um, uh-huh. even for myself now in my conversations with my husband, when we're talking about religious mindset and things that we've believed in the past and how our thinking has changed, you know, we, we both have at one point or another looked at one another and said, I always wondered that, but I, I didn't want to ask, mm-hmm. you know, because, it, because there is a sense of fear of losing your identity or your place, um, within oh, yeah. a religious belief system. 
And, right. and certainly, of course, I don't know, I, I guess finding your identity in a belief system is true across the spectrum. Um, but Catholicism mm-hmm. is a very large, you know, ideology, basically. And, yes. and so for you to publicly, as she done, has done, publicly question some of that. And of course, that's becoming more mainstream, even in, in the Catholic religion now, people questioning some of the tenets of the church mm-hmm. and saying, well, how does this make sense? Um, I, I found that to be very brave as well. And, and in keeping with being relatable to people, um, yeah. because I, I do think that at some point we have to, we have to start addressing some of the issues, issues that she brings up in this book. Um, you mm-hmm. know, you hear in the news and, and of course in scientific study and whatnot, the idea of population control and, you know, resource allocation and things like that. Well, right. they're, that's kind of at odds with just have as many children as you can. Right. And, and of course, as you mentioned, that is, you know, that is very much a part of culture in other countries and, and manliness, so to speak. And yeah, Uh, there were a couple of stories that stood out to me. Um, um, (laughs) one, and they're kind of humorous, uh, to me, uh, just the tenacity of some women, Uh, Mm -hmm. it took, it took them actually being tenacious to cause, uh, I, I think, People like um, Melinda and, and others inspired these women to um, challenge the patriarchy and the status quo. So a couple of the stories was uh, one woman, she was just tired. She had these kids and she was just tired. I think it was like a 14-hour round trip to go get water or something. Right. It was just something ridiculous. And um, she just sat down on the stoop one day and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> And it forced the husband to, uh, uh, what did he do? Did he make a bicycle and ended up yeah, biking th- to I the well? So, and yes. then eventually, eventually uh, he and other men got together and dug a new well in the village or something like that. So, you know, just, just the tenacity of, of that woman, you mm-hmm. know, changed the whole village and, and actually, you know, saved hours and hours of time. And, right. Uh, then, then there's that other story of uh, uh, another village where they were, I, I can't remember which country it was in, but uh, it, w- it had to do with rice. And so they wanted to develop a, a rice that uh, was more, you could get more rice mm-hmm. yield per field, per acre. And they developed this new rice and everything. But the so, you know, this is a couple of years in the making. And then when it came time to harvest, the women complained because it was too low. They wanted they wanted the same rice per yield, but <laughs> they wanted the stocks to be higher so they wouldn't have to break their backs right. bending over right. to, to harvest it. And so they had to go back to the laboratory and develop a taller stock for the rice so that the women didn't have to bend over so much. And, you know, they could have just saved time by asking the women – to start with, right, right, <laughs> but they had to do all. All the men were, you know, doing all the consulting and all this kind of thing, and going to the lab and all that. And you know, they produce this great seed, rice, and come to find out it's no good. Yeah, and they have to go back to the back to the drawing board again. So it just stories like that were fascinating, and um, how how women when they felt empowered and, and dared to challenge the status quo mm-hmm. uh, would change the, the, the health and wealth of their, their village. 
Well, you brought up something a little bit ago that I think kind of plays into that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, um, of course, much of the world and still is and in, in involved in the ideas of, of patriarchal thinking. Um, right. it, I think sometimes it just doesn't occur, you know, like, oh, we should ask women about this because they're the ones doing this, the work. Well, oh, it doesn't occur because, oh, it's a woman, you know, and, right. and that is, of course, very cultural and, and has some basis in the timing and, and whatnot. But even the point being patriarchy, you know, we tend to say that word. And of course we think man, but women participate in the patriarchy as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and we do so, and I know that I did for years because we were willing to accept, you know, oh, this is our role. This is, you know, this right. is where God has placed us and, and it's it's wrong or it's ungodly to step outside of that role. So, mm-hmm. so we don't. So we participate within that patriarchal thinking. Um, what I find amazing and awesome and what should be happening is that you're finding more women stepping outside of that, but even better, you're finding more men stepping into the idea of feministic thinking and saying, okay, we do have to bring women into these conversations. Um, Mm -hmm. which of course is more difficult in other countries where women are not as educated because even Mm -hmm. here where we have education open to us for the most part, women are still fighting that battle to be heard and to be listened to because, well, we've learned something. We can Mm -hmm. contribute to this conversation, but there's still that line of thinking, um, that, that, okay, okay, we'll get to you in a few minutes. Or that's how I feel. I mean, I'm in business. I've owned a business for quite a few, 20 years now. And I still find that that line of thinking, when I want to get an idea across to a client, I am often told, hold on a minute while they ask a man in the same field. It's maddening. It's just maddening. But I've learned to roll with it. And, I, and I've learned you know how to, to circumvent that, basically. Um, but for something yeah. as actually physically laborious, like, you know, harvesting rice. Yeah. Yeah. You should talk to the people that actually do the work. That just makes sense, you know, but it it apparently (laughs) doesn't. (laughs) No, I, I read this uh, story the other day of a a woman who, um, uh, she responded to an ad looking, they were looking for professional gamblers Mm. and, uh, it's just such a fascinating story of this <laughs> young woman who who answered the ad and they were looking for young, beautiful women to go in and win the tables of blackjack. He taught them how to count, hmm. you know, how to all this kind of thing. And they would go in and win the house and then move on. And they would try to keep it below the radar in terms of amounts they were winning, but they would just travel around a different casino. But she said that she was hoping that she'd be able to meet men and things like that and, and, uh, hook up with men and things. And, um, but she said every single instant, and she was emphatic. She said every single time when a man found out that she was a professional gambler, they immediately (laughs) assumed that she worked at the table (laughs) And then when she made it clear that she was the the gambler, like she was actually a professional gambler, they were like, well, let me explain how you really win. And and the men would go on and and explain to them. And she says, no, no, I'm a successful professional gambler. No, no, here's how it happens in the real world, sweetie, kind of thing. And it's like, I I was just, I was just amazed. I, I, I just couldn't, I was shaking my head. I couldn't believe it. And how, 
you know, we, we see that all the time. We see that all the time and um, how, how we've all participated in that. Oh, and, for sure. and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like the, the, the women in these stories, it's not that it's, it's not that they just want a voice. It's not like they're just, you know, I'm tired of not being heard. Right. Um, although that's valid in and mm-hmm. of itself. They really believe they could improve their lot in life and, and, and their family and their friends and the village and save lives. And they really, you know, wanted to be heard because they had something important to contribute to the, to the village or exactly. whatever. So, and, and that's Melinda's point, I think, is mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not just um, equality, it's improvement of right. everyone when there's equality. Right. Well, she yeah. talks about in the book, and, and of course, this is something that I think applies even still in, in our own cultures here within the United States and Canada. She said one of the most personal issues for her in the book was that of unpaid work. Um, and, oh, and yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but she, I mean, I've, I've made these comments over the years. Like I've told my husband plenty of times, you, you don't make enough money to hire somebody to do everything I do, you know? And, <laughs> and, and so we joke about it, but that's actually true. It's true. <laughs> it's actually 100% accurate. The, and it's measured. Of, uh, yes. Well, it is. It's now. actually measured in the States and in Canada. They right. actually measure well, how, my, how many in- hours. She goes into the uh, the background on that, though, because for so long it wasn't considered a part of any kind of calculation from the labor department or or anything right. like that. It was just, oh, this is a woman's role. So, okay, you can go out and work, hon, but when you get home, you still have all this other stuff to do. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and nobody considered the time and effort and what the value of that time and effort was um, in raising the children and taking care of a home. Um, right. It, it's only been... Gosh, very recently. I mean, some of the statistics when you when you read some of the stuff she wrote, I I was I was blown away. I was like, there's there's actual court cases like where women didn't have a voice in some of this stuff, you know, until the sixties and seventies. And and that's yeah. that's mind boggling. Um well it's mind boggling too that 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 um even with professional um couples, they're both professionals. Yes. They come home and the women still work twice as much as the man in the home. Yeah. In well, I mean, it was that way. I mean, my husband and I were both in the Marine Corps. And then of course, when we got out, I did stay home for quite a few years with our kids and he worked. Then mm-hmm. I went back to work and I'll tell you, uh, I think right around the time they were in high school, my kids are in high school. Uh, I remember, and I don't remember it being a, I'm throwing my, you know, I'm stomping my foot and making a point, but I remember looking at my husband and saying, I'm so tired of cooking. And, <laughs> and he said to me, he goes, do you want me to do it? And I was like, Yes. And he's been cooking ever since. And, and of awesome. course, now my kids are grown and, and out of the house, but he still does the majority of the cooking, uh, the majority of the housework. I, I work. I, I write. I work. You know, and I'm in the gym a lot. So he has really yeah, picked up yeah. the slack as you know what I would consider the housework kind of side of things. He's really picked that up. Um, yeah. But that's not true in a lot of households. And oh, again- no. No, and this is another area where in my notes, I have it written here. Again, this comes back to religious overtones for me and, you know, religious yeah. expectations and gender bias as far as what is considered the cultural norm for who does what. Yeah. You know, okay. You, can no, work, I, uh, you only get to work part-time, so you still have time to clean the house. Yeah. You know? No, Lisa and I, we, we pretty much share the responsibility inside the house and I work at home mm-hmm. um, and Lisa is a nurse, so she's out working, but. 
I do a lot of the cooking and, you know, cleaning and, and all that. But I used to, like, I grew up in a patriarchal house mm. um, and, and Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I grew up the same. <laughs> so it's like, you know, there were very clear gender roles right. for sure. And I, I still have friends who are like, I, I, I would say, I, I'll, I'll uh, change their names to protect myself. <laughs> but uh, I'll say, I'll say, so Joe, you know, when you, when you get the steak, you do that, oh, I've never cooked a thing in my life. And like, sort of, oh my goodness, it's kind of a shock. Yeah. But it's true. Well, and th- I mean, that's yeah. here. That's here, you know, in, in what here. we consider the developed world. So in, in you know, the underdeveloped world or the, you know, third world countries, as we like to say, I mean, those ideas of, of gender roles are still very much the norm um, and, mm-hmm. and almost considered sacrosanct. I mean, that's, that's just right. the way it is. Um, right. You know, even, even to the ideas, of course, of sexuality and, and things like that, because going back to one of the earlier chapters in the book, and, and we've kind of touched on it already, the idea of birth control, I, I was amazed at the idea that, well, women couldn't get certain birth control that they wanted, but condoms were readily available, but the women wouldn't use them. And, and no. you know, we're, we're led to believe that, well, if women just had birth control, they would use it. Well, there's cultural reasons that they weren't using it. That was considered exactly. taboo to their husbands. And, right. and so when you think about things like that, you know, we, we realize how far we may have come here in the Western world and we're still struggling. So it, of course, throws a very big shadow on countries where they're not as developed um, yeah. in the mindset or, you know, in gender roles or what have you. Um, it's actually, it's like I said, it's very humbling for me here. I, it made me really take stock of how lucky I am. Um, but it also mm-hmm. gave me such a, a feeling of being impressed, especially with women like Melinda Gates that are willing to go say, Hey, we need to shine a light on this. And, and we need yes. to, we need to say, Hey, this is something that we have to start considering that there, that women bring more value to the table than maybe we've even considered, mm-hmm. you know, as it pertains yeah. to whatever subject matter. Um, I was, I was surprised at how, um, a lot of, uh, the, the stuff going on in, in different cultures and, you know, in, in, you know, North America too, how much is linked to, um, male pleasure too, mm-hmm. like, so, for example, the condom or female mutilation and oh things like gosh. that. It's all, it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how much of this was linked to ideas about, um, what, what is most pleasurable for the man. Right. Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot yeah. in that book. And it, and again, it, 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 it's probably things that seem logical, but you really just don't spend a lot of time considering. And, and that for me anyway, comes from a place of, well, yeah, I just take that for granted. You know, it doesn't occur Mm -hmm. to me to think, well, I can't be educated. I'm incredibly educated. I've worked hard to be very educated. And, and, and yet when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I got all that education, but you still have to fight for your voice sometimes. So imagine if you didn't have that education, (laughs) you know, and, and, and that is the, the reality for, for a lot of people. And so it, it is a very important conversation. Um, and, and she hit on so many different areas that, that literally need to be expounded on. Um, remember that, remember that story, uh, of the Indian village, East India, where the, the local guru or, you know, 
priest or whatever insisted that newborns had to be fed water. Yes, they couldn't have for three days. Yes. For three days. Yeah. And they couldn't be held by the mother. And, and a lot, there was an infant mortality is super high. Yes. And, uh, you know, just, just the, the, um, superstitions, mm-hmm. uh, that I, oh man, it was just, just incredible. Just to hold the baby, uh, would bring it back to life and to feed it. Right. Feed the baby, uh, breast milk would, you know, and, and the mortality rate went way down, but they all knew they were taking a huge risk at defying right. that local, um, priest. Well, and, and, didn't they and have it to- reminded me of, it just reminded me of how, how many people, um, are, uh, af- you know, how, how we can be afraid of the authority that's yeah. over our lives right. and, and will actually cause us a lot of pain and suffering because we're, we we're afraid to challenge that. Well, especially if that authority is religious in nature, I mean, exactly. what you're talking about in that village, it was, he was considered a religious figure. Um, right. so you of course didn't go against that because anytime we're, you know, we consider going against a religious figure, the, the, of course, the extension beyond that is you're going against God. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's, there's a very big problem for the, people in any, in any culture, I think, uh, in any religious yeah. uh, system to feel that way, which is why it is very difficult to start asking questions and to move outside of those lines of thinking. Um, it, I think it was that same story or it was within that same chapter. She talked about the girl, it was in India. She talked about the girl that was from a higher caste system oh, and that she was yeah. trained to help. And, and of course there was the baby that had been born that was so cold. It was like 94 degrees and, and, and was dying. But nobody would mm-hmm. touch the baby because they were afraid of the evil spirit that, of course, right. had to be responsible for the death of the child. It couldn't just be the child was cold. I mean, again, right. this is a lack of right. education. Um, and, and the decision she had to make as somebody of a higher caste system, knowing this child needs skin-to-skin contact, needs to be warmed, and this is the best way, I have to step outside of my cultural norm and my conditioning and put right. this other life ahead of of you know, where I place myself in society. And so of course she did and saved the baby. Um, I thought that was a big shift in thinking as well, because it's yeah. not necessarily religious in nature, but it, it almost is because that's, it's definitely a part of their whole system, you know, that exactly. people are born into different stations in life and, and they're not supposed to cross, which I found was interesting because I, I would have imagined, at least in my limited education on, on that caste system, that somebody of her for lack of a better way of saying it, elevated status would have had, would have been in the position to be working with people of a different caste. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that she was doing that was a big step. And then stepping beyond that to say, let me, let me touch this person that I'm not supposed to touch in, in order to save their life. I, I found that fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. again, humbling, like, wow, the bravery that that takes to step outside of the norm and outside of the expectation, especially of those people sitting right there in the room at the moment and mm-hmm. saying, look, I'm able to give you your child back because I'm, I was, un, I was unafraid to step outside of your expectation. And yeah. there, I, again, yeah, it's amazing with, with, I think any great movement and I, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but any great movement, it's the, it's the bravery of those few that stand up and say, no, we're going to do it differently. As you had mentioned earlier, that truly mm-hmm. began to turn the tide and and show that this there is positives that come from this and we have to be open to that evolution in mindset exactly yeah and and yeah. Uh, to me anyway and I, of course i'm very focused on education at the moment education is 
key to that. Um, right. And, and right. it kind of has to be the place where you start to make any kind of change. You have to be able to, yep. at, at the very least, it, give a good explanation to somebody as to why they should do it differently. You know, even the example you just used of the guru who said, hey, you can't feed, you can't breastfeed this baby for three days. They had to go to the example of, well, look at what the cows do. You know, yeah. nature says that we should do it this way. And they had to approach that so cautiously in, in order yeah. to enact change in the thinking. So it, it yeah. is, it's amazing. And again, she's bringing out a lot of stuff that, you know, every day here in America or in Canada, we probably would have no knowledge of, you know, outside right. of reading it in a book. We, it's not a part of our, our cultural understanding. Not many people travel to small remote villages in India or Africa. Um, in mm-hmm. order to, to see it all firsthand. So it's, uh, she's done a great service, I think. And she's of course done it in such a way that it's, it's like I said, it's an, it's easy to read because it flows. The ideas behind yeah. it, however, can become a little more daunting as you start extrapolating your thoughts on the ideas. But, um, I, yeah. I just, I found it to be a great book. I was really happy for the suggestion. Um, and as, as mm-hmm. you said earlier, you know, you had other books in mind. I'm kind of at the, I'm kind of so far at the mercy of the people suggesting the books. <laughs> yeah. So when yeah. I saw this, I'm like, oh, I'm really going to like this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you get assigned books that uh, you're probably not all that thrilled about oh, reading? But well, I don't know. or I'm, I'm not certain I'm up to intellectually, um, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier about the book that you suggested. Uh, yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have bookshelves full of books of my own that that I read, and and I'm I yeah. I don't think there's ever a time that I don't have a book in front of me or you know a stack sitting on the table next to me. Um, but yeah, some of them are way way over my head, um, and so I spend a great amount of time trying to fig- make sure I understand what I'm reading, which is not always. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, this one I very much was able to understand, but she challenged my ideology more than anything, my ideology more than my intellect at this point. And, Mm -hmm. and so that was, um, that wasn't, that was a nice, (laughs) a nice, uh, I was like, I'm going to enjoy this conversation because I I feel like I have a good handle on understanding this conversation. Um, well, I think it's so important. It's like, it's like she says, this is, uh, it's such a huge issue. It's such a big deal because it's not just about, um, you know, uh, like I said, it's, it, it's not just about giving, letting women find their voice and using their voice. It's about the elevation of all of us. It's mm-hmm. about the improvement of society right. as a whole and families and, and our, our countries and, and so on. So I really appreciated her whole angle on, on forgiveness and the outsider yes. and, and you know, that, that whole thing about, um, um, about, uh, outsiders aren't the problem. The problem is the idea of outsiders, mm-hmm. you know, right. I, I have a quote, I wrote down a quote. Um, here it is. Every society says it's outsiders are the problem, but the outsiders are not the problem. The urge to create outsiders yes. is the problem. Yes. Well, and, and, and I, I think had that's a, so urgent right now. Oh, for sure. And and I had a, a conversation recently on another another recording of a podcast where we talked about mimetic theory, and of course, that is very prevalent. in Mimetic theory is creating those scapegoats, and yes. and creating those groups of people that that become examples of the evils of the world, 
And, right. and I had a quote written down from Melinda as well, where she said, our societies will be healthiest when we have no outsiders. And exactly. And, yes. And I find that that I is still that one of the bigger challenges that we have here in the Western world is that we are very good at creating those outsiders still and, and whole yeah. groups of people that we are going to lay the blame of society on. Um, and, and like, like certain, uh, of your Congresswomen, for example, oh, for sure. I don't want to yeah. get in. You, you don't, this, I know this isn't a political podcast, no, that's but, all right. uh, but, uh, you know, um, the idea of, of creating outsiders is, is perpetuating the problem for sure. Well, uh, what it does is it allows us to, of course, draw our supporters and create our tribes. And, and then of course, you know, create disparity between mm. those tribes so that you, so that you can show why you're better than somebody else. And, and it's, it's playground antics in my, in my estimation. Um, because I, I feel like it doesn't matter who I'm talking to and it may be somebody I even very much disagree with on most subject matters. There's still something I can learn from that person. Um, and I'm able to see something of myself mirrored back from them. And so because of that, you know, either they've challenged me with a new idea or they've shown me a part of myself that maybe I need to work on. Um, so I look at it that way. So to me, I don't, I don't think outsiders, again, I think she's right. That is, that is a very big problem. We won't be healthy until we get rid of that notion. Although I'm not sure we can get rid of that notion. Um, Uh, she's, I I have another quote here. Um, this is the core remedy for poverty and almost any social ill, including the excluded mm -hmm. going to the margins of society and bringing everybody back in. Yeah. Yeah. She's right. Because, you know, we, Go ahead. we still Sorry. have a ton of marginalized people in our country and be that from gender exactly. standpoint, sexuality standpoint, religious standpoint, whatever you yeah. want to say, somebody right. is always an outsider to somebody else. Right. And it comes back to our mindset. Exactly. So I had a quote here. She said, this is how the great movements of social change get traction. When outsiders <laughs> reject the low self-image society has imposed on them and begin to author a self-image of their own. And I love. I, I wrote the same thing Did down. You? <laughs> it's funny we all have this written down the same quote. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that, I mean, but again, you know, and and I, I place myself squarely in this camp. Um, I lived my life from the from the perspective of what I thought other people expected me to be, rather than who mm-hmm. I choose to be. And of course, it's only in my age. I'm in my fifties now. It's only now that I'm like I wasted a lot of time not being who I wanted to be. And now I'm going to be who I want to be. And yes. all those that don't like it can just step away. <laughs> yeah, get out of the way. Get out of my way. I got too much to do to worry about whether you approve or not. Um, unfortunately, what, what is your business? My business? Oh, boy. I'm a very eclectic person. Um, I have degrees in I have a degree in accounting. I have an MBA. Um, so I have uh, an accounting business where I work with um, actual businesses. Uh, okay. as kind of an outsourced controller CFO kind of position. Um, uh-huh. I am also working uh, on my doctorate in psychology because I found that so very much of business and how I relate with business owners is limited by some of their psychological beliefs about business. Um, okay. And so, and then of course, oh, that's a good one. yeah, well, <laughs> it's a work in progress. Um, I'm also an ordained pastor. So I come from that background as well and found a lot of interest in writing. So that, that is a, a later in life, second half of life choice to write. Hmm. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. working on that. And then of course I've now stepped back into the fit health and fitness realm, um, which I was in earlier in life and found that as I was getting older, I had neglected. So it was time to get back to that. So I'm kind of an all over the place person. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. 
So, and, and of course, you know, reading, you know, especially a lot of different types of book books allows for a lot of new interests and right. things that you want to know more about or try yourself or, you know, uh, you, you basically get to live through somebody else's experience when you read a book. And, and that to me is very attractive. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it's doubtful. Like I said, I'm ever going to go get to sit in a little village in India, but I can read about it and, and get some perspective on it. So I, I appreciate that about, about sharing yeah. books and, and having conversations about them. And so, well, um, the, the, my cartoons that, um, cause the most offense mm-hmm, to people mm-hmm. are, I would say my number one, one is women. Mm. And then my second one is LGBTQ. Yeah, I would I, I would have thought one or two of those. Yeah, I would have thought LGBT. Yeah, I would have thought um, the the cartoons on LGBT. I always get the letters wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I can't no, get no, my no, mouth LGBT to say it right. I would have thought those were the most uh, that you would have got the most pushback on. But I can see the idea of women as well becoming a problem. Oh, welcome to the podcast to my dogs. Um, it's that time of day for howling. Uh, but yeah, I, I've very much enjoyed your cartoons, as I mentioned earlier over the years, because they have allowed me a glimpse into things that maybe I have been afraid to confront in my own belief systems. Oh. Um, and so that, I'm fascinated by your dog. Oh my what are gosh. They, I, you know, it's a little early. This, this usually goes on around 10. So I don't know what happened outside now. But yeah, I have two very large dogs. And of course, they like to insert themselves noisily into my life. Uh, so I apologize. Are they, are they hounds? They sound like hounds. No, they're not. They I, maybe they have aspirations to be. I don't know. <laughs> one is a pit bull, and the other's a lab. They they just they oh. get going and they feed off of one another. And so, oh look, I have a dog too, but it's a little westy. Ah, so. yeah, I've got the big dogs, and I love them. But some days, and I can't. I think there's been one podcast recording where they have not insinuated themselves within into the conversation in such a manner. So. Whoa. Cool. little stinkers. But anyway, this has been a great conversation, David. Thank you so much for agreeing to sit down and, and suggesting such a great book. I've really uh, enjoyed it. Um, well, I like talking about it. It's great. Yeah. And you mentioned another book. I still think you should come back and we should do a book that neither one of us feels very confident about and we can muddle through it together. Okay. <laughs> okay. I would enjoy well, that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Have me back. Yes, I'd love absolutely. To. I'd love to talk about yeah. books. Yeah, me too. And like I said, I have a bookshelf. And and you, what was the book you mentioned earlier? It was the something about physics, and I didn't write it down. Yeah, seven brief lessons in physics okay. by um, Carlo Rovelli. Uh-huh. Okay. It's, uh huh. It's he's Italian physicist, mm. um, but uh, it's been translated. It's a beautiful. <laughs> I'll tell you, I I I bought the book on Kindle, and it was so beautiful, <laughs> and. My I, my wife looked over at me. She said, "Why are you crying?" I, I said, "I'm reading this beautiful book on physics." On physics, <laughs> and, she, and she looked at me like I was crazy. But it was it was one of my it was a he's an atheist, mm. but it was so spiritual yeah. reading this stuff. It, it's quantum physics. Yeah, I have a couple books on seven, quantum physics, so that's something I'm very much in, interested in learning more about. So. I got the Kindle version and I love the book so much. I bought the hard copy and it's in my collection. Like it's just a short little book, but it's so beautiful. I have, I have a a standard on mine. Um, Of course I have lots of like actual, you know, books, books sitting on my shelves. Um, 
And, but it's funny, I have several, I, I don't know, at least 20 or so books where I have the audible version, the Kindle version. And oh, then yeah. I had to go get the book itself so I could highlight and, and make my notes. <laughs> so I'm like, that's how, you know, you've re- reached the creme de la creme of my bookshelf is, <laughs> is I have it in three different versions. Um, uh, and I go back no, I need often. It. So I, I read it. I read it. I've read it several times now. Yeah. It's just so just so powerful and and it just oozes spirituality even though he's an atheist but well you'll have to come back um, and we'll have to talk about that one then because now i'm in now i'm very interested so but i have another one i'm recommending okay. to all my friends <laughs> and it's called uh search inside yourself oh. by uh tan he works at google he's one of the first oh. engineers there he's also involved with um you know human resources and so on and he developed a program it's kind of a play on words because Google search, right? And this right. program is called Search Inside Yourself. <laughs> and it's basically about happiness. Oh. And it's just so, it, it, he said his goal was to take great truths and distill them down into very simple, yeah, clear. Those are the best. Uh, and, and he does it. It's just so good. Oh, well, see, so, so we good. have a lot more we could talk about. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us, David. I really appreciated it, and I've really enjoyed the time together and the book as well. So we'll definitely have to sit down again. Absolutely, Michelle. Let's do it. All right. You take care. Okay. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.